0: Praise God! Good to have you all here today. And we're going to be looking at another very well-known parable that um, that people do know do know. And we'll take a look at it for the the things. Last week we were looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. A number of you came up and had said that that uh, was was things about that parable that you didn't quite un- understand before or see before. But if you were Jesus facing this group of people who came and asked them the question, these are Lawyers and Pharisees and so forth. And they came and asked you a question, how do you get saved? And they believe that the way you get saved is through the law. And if you are going to answer anything different than that, you're going to, you're going to have a fight. And so Jesus, the expert that he is, steers the conversation away. You tell me what you read about how you get saved. And he answered. And then the conversation went on to who's my neighbor. And most people who read the Good Samaritan, think that it's all about being neighborly and being a, a good good neighbor. And that's not the meaning of it at all. But Jesus was able to take and answer the original question and he showed them that not only was, when the priest and the Levite came by, he said the law cannot help you when you're on the side of the road half dead. The sacrifices can't help you when you're on the side of the road half dead. What did help you is the one who is despised of men, which is he used as a Samaritan, who came alongside and he's the one who administered the Holy Spirit, the oil and the wine. He's the one who put him on the beast and carried him in. And he's the one who paid, he supplied everything that he would need while he went on a journey. You remember it in the parable that everybody else happened by chance, but this man was on a journey. And so sometimes we can lose the meaning that Jesus is trying to get to us because we take the surface thing. This is all true in, in many areas of Scripture. We take the surface meaning, but we missed in what he was actually beginning to teach so we spent some time on that last week. If you weren't here, you can always go back up, get the podcast, watch the videos. We have it all kinds of places. But here we're going to take a look at the prodigal son and the parables that go around that particular one that a lot of people know about the prodigal son. And uh, we want to take a look at what this is actually doing. always, 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 whenever you get into the teachings of Jesus and especially the parables, all you need to do to find out the meaning of it is what started it. Always go back to what started it. If you ever move out of the context, move away from what started it, you will more than likely come out with a meaning other than what was intended. And that's the thing that you, you want to get done. Way back before, we used to do some uh, teaching on, uh, classes on teaching, help people understand how to how to teach. And how many of are familiar with the three-point sermon? Anybody familiar with that? I mean, come on, you look at the outline. I give you a three-point sermon almost every week. I changed it this time because I made it what? Four. <laughs> I made it a four-point sermon here. The reason for that is this. I, I had people who teach me to do this, and I, had to, I struggled with it. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. I, I had a real difficult time with it until I finally understood, came to me on, on my own. God was ministering to me on this. He helped me out. That really all the three-point sermon is is a, is a roadmap. When God showed this to me as a roadmap, where you have your start point and your end point, and the three points are how you're getting there. And I used, whenever we uh, did this in class, I would use this example. Because constantly, every year, my family was always taking off from this point here, all the way out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Every year, in February, we would head on out for Winter Bible Seminar down at Raymond Bible Training Center. And we would go on out there, and we'd spend the, the week out there for the teaching. But if I wanted to tell you how to get to Tulsa from here, it is a three-point sermon. It is Route 70, I'm sorry, Route root 76 to 70 to 44, and you're in. Three points. 76 to 70 to 44, and you got it. Now, if I'm going to tell you this, tell you, I might, I might stop a little bit and kind of tell you some things along the way. You know, well, Pennsylvania just seems like you're in Pennsylvania forever. But once you get out of Pennsylvania, get in Ohio. Oh, the roads are so much nicer in Ohio, and the speed limit. Back then, the speed limit changed greatly. We went from 55 to 75. Glory to God! 75 going through Ohio, and most of the other states, you get 70, 75. It was just Pennsylvania that was stuck at that 55 for a while, and then you go on that, on that, you'd pick up 70. And you'd cruise on 70 all the way into St. Louis, Missouri. And see, when you get into St. Louis, Missouri, that's probably the most confusing city you will get in. And if you're not really watching it, you will get off on the wrong road. So you got to make sure, as you always warn people about this, make sure you watch the signs because this is where you're changing over to Route 44. And that's the road that's going to take you right into Tulsa. And you're going to go right past over top of the Mississippi River. And you're going to see the the big arch, St. Louis Arch. And we may talk about some more things. And Then you you go on past that and you head on out to Oklahoma and you head into nothing. Zip. Not a, There is not a thing in Oklahoma. You go on by there and you see nothing but grass and ranches for miles on in. And you've got about a hundred miles of this until you finally get to Tulsa, Oklahoma and then all of a sudden here comes a city that just pops up. And then there you are. You see, I, all those other things are rabbit trails. They're there to kind of enlighten the trip. But you see, as long as I know the three points, I know the starting point, I know the end point. And as long as I know the three points, 76 to 70 to 44, I can get off on any rabbit trail I want because I know how to get back. You see, sometimes you listen to preachers and they don't have that mapped out. And they get distracted and they go off on something. You ever listen to a preacher and they got distracted and you got done? You said, what in the world did they teach? And you had no idea. The reason you don't have any idea is because they didn't know where they were going. My wife says that all the time. She says, I just wanted to get in the car and drive. I can't do that. My brain doesn't work that way. If I get in the car, I have to know where I'm going. I can't just drive. I have to, I have a destination. It can be north, south, east, west. It can be this particular city over here. I, I just need a destination. I just don't, my wife, she said, well, we used to just, bring we were kids, we used to get in the car and we just used, used to drive. That fries my brain. I just, I just can't do that. I have to know, all right, where are we going? What are we going to do? So these things can, can help us out with that. But when Jesus does this, Jesus has a beginning point, he has an end point. And he knows how he's getting there in between. He's phenomenal with it. And you may not always pull out the necessarily three points. Three points is just something we kind of came up with. But you can get there two points, you can get there four points, you can get whatever, but you know where you're going. This leads to this, this leads to this, and this leads to this. Now, this particular episode, it's real easy to find three points, but I divided it up into four. Because I think really what Jesus was getting at here is done in, in four different things. These are what I call the lost parables. They are not lost parables in that we didn't know where they were. We found them. That's not the lost parables that we're talking about here. The lost parables are parables about the lost. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Hmm. Now, if you're wondering why this upsets people, these are sinners, wouldn't they need to, to know the word? There's actually a teaching, and I saw it written. I, I saw the reference, and the reference made absolutely no sense to me, but it was written in the Jewish law that they had it that you could not teach the law, you could not teach the word to people that were considered sinners. That's their thinking. That's not your thinking, is it? So you would read this, you would not understand that, but the thinking of these people is if people are destitute, if they are sinners, if they're in a life of sin, you should not even teach them the law. Does that make sense? No, it made sense to somebody at some point I'm not sure why but all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him that's the setting so they're all coming in what's Jesus doing do you think well, we don't know because it doesn't say but more than likely he's teaching them he's giving them the word of God and they don't like this because these are sinners these are people that are in a life of sin and you're there teaching them the word of God and the Pharisees and scribes complained saying this man receives sinners and eats with them so he spoke this parable to them, saying... Now, again, go over the purpose of a parable. The purpose of a parable is to teach truth, embedding it in a story that will hide the truth from those who don't want it. That's why it's so... Well, when you look at the first one, the parable of the soils, parable of the seed, you look at that and say, I don't... People were saying, I don't understand this. I don't under- what, are you, what are you talking about? Disciples come to Jesus, we don't understand this. They couldn't even get a surface meaning out of it. Surely he's not teaching us about farming. Surely that's not the, the deal that's going on here. And he wasn't. But with the Good Samaritan, it was so easy to get lost in the mercy aspect of the story that we missed the whole meaning. But here, this is the purpose. They were complaining. So this parable does not come about because of a question asked. It comes about because of complaints and criticism. They were complaining that Jesus was doing this and they were criticizing Jesus for doing it. How good of a teacher can he be if he is going to give the law, if he's going to give the teaching to people that are sinners? They saw this as a perfect opportunity to judge him. Verse 4. So this this is the parable. You all ready? What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. So this is the first one. Now this is the lost parables. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking three different scenarios that cause people to get lost. Three different scenarios and how God looks at each one. Here's the first one. This is the sheep that has wandered away. Why do sheep wander away? Well, one thing, curiosity. They're just, oh, I wonder what's over there. And they just begin to, to wander off. Another one is distractions. They desire for something outside of what is thought would come from the shepherd. <laughs> you ever had any Christians who wandered outside of the sheepfold because they wanted something they didn't think they would get? Staying in the sheepfold? Staying with the other sheep? Staying under the shepherd? They begin to wander off Maybe they haven't quite yet learned the shepherd's voice and they wandered off because of that. There's several different reasons you could probably come up with, but the sheep wandered off. This guy's got a hundred sheep. We talked about that number before, but that's kind of a standard number that somebody would go out with, a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine he leaves behind to go after this one. He's wandered off. Now, we know that Jesus is the great shepherd. This parable shows us the work of Jesus toward the lost. This is the work of Jesus toward the lost. He is saying that the the attitude of the great shepherd. Now, they don't know the great shepherd is Jesus. When he's teaching them, they have no idea the great shepherd is Jesus. They're clueless on that. Eventually they'll get it. We're just going to teach you about the great shepherd right now. The great shepherd, when he sees one wander off, he goes after it. He leaves the 99 and he goes after that one. Now, it seems to be implied that the 99 um, are left without anybody. And he just kind of expects that they would all stay while well, he goes out and he finds the, the one, which apparently they all do. And then he comes back and he, he brings that one, joins, gets the whole flock together. Some people might say, well, you know, it's just one. Let's, uh, let's stay with the 99. Let's hang on to the 99. But Jesus is saying, My, the attitude of the great shepherd is to the lost that he will leave the 99 to go after that one. What is the attitude of the people making the complaints? Don't even pursue them. Don't even go after them. What he's getting across in this first one is that sometimes people that were in the sheepfold, we're not even talking about completely unsaved people, but people who know about God, people maybe who have gone to church and have wandered off. The shepherd says, I'll leave everything to go out there and find that one to bring them on back. Now, if we're going to emulate him, what should we do? We should pursue them. We should go after them. Verse 8. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully till she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we know from parables that, that the characters in the parable represent things. So, the, the shepherd, easy, pretty easy to figure that one out. What does the woman represent in the Word of God? There's two things that the woman represents in the Word of God. In the Old Testament, the woman represents Israel. She's depicted many many times as a woman, the bride, the marriage. Many times, uh, when they became unfaithful, with with idols, it was considered. It was talked about like a woman who had committed adultery, and that's what she was called. In the New Testament, what's the woman represent? The church. We got the Old Testament. We got the New Testament represented in the woman. Now it says the woman lost the coin. I mean, she had it, right? It was in her possession. She had the coin. What he's telling you this is, uh, well, well let me put it this way, this way. When a coin gets lost from your possession, is it the coin's fault? Did the coin wander off? I know we have accused some of doing that. Then they grew legs and just walked away, right? <laughs> I know they were here. Sometimes we might accuse those things of that, but really they don't they don't do that. Somehow we mishandled it. We dropped it somewhere, we put it down in a different place, whatever it might be. Uh there's some indication that it's possible that the kind of coins that are mentioned here and why it was so precious, it's some of the uh women when they got married, they had these coins that they would wear around their neck. I haven't heard that too many places, but I have heard it in a few. Maybe that is a possibility and one of them had fallen off and so this is a particular valuable it represented the marriage. It represented the uh, covenant that she had with her husband. And that could be part of the reason. And surely that would still stay within the theme of this particular parable. But look at what she does here. The woman having ten silver coins. Got to remember with a parable, everything in it, Jesus made up and it's there because he wanted it there. He doesn't have things that just kind of show up in the story. Oh, where did that come from? Everything has a purpose. So what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, now if you lose one sheep out of a hundred, what have you lost? One one hundred. If you lose one coin out of ten, you you've lost one ten. You've lost a little bit greater percentage there, haven't you? He could have kept the percentages the same does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Why is the lamp mentioned? Why bring the lamp into it? Is there any mention of a lamp with the sheep? What's the lamp representing in the Word of God? The light, the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what this is telling you is this, that sometimes people become lost Because the church mishandled them. The church hurt them, affected them, said some things and they said, I don't need this. I read a story this week of a lady who was talking about her experience in church and that she had a little two-year-old and the two-year-old was in the church service with her and the two-year-old was crying and she was holding the the baby and a couple of the people uh, made her feel really bad about having a crying two-year-old while they were in church, I guess it was taken away from their enjoyment of the worship service or whatever it might be. And uh, she said, no, I'm not going to get offended and not come back, but I know some people who could. So I said, yeah, that's what some people would would maybe do. Um, and you may have seen things like that where people have done some very insensitive things trying to preserve the sanctity of, of worship in church and people have gotten hurt. People have got offended. Why did you come in here smelling like that? Why did you come here wearing those clothes? Why did you come in here and not follow suit with what we expect you to do? And people are made to feel bad and they can get mishandled by the church. Have you seen people be mishandled by the church and go? What he says is, you light a lamp. You get involved with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can come along and help you find them. Where are they? what's going on. That may not necessarily mean that you have to find, maybe you can see them, but you've got to find them spiritually. You've got to find out what's going on here. Because if you find somebody like that, they say, oh, I just I don't have time for church anymore. I'm just not coming back because I just don't have time. Well, you didn't find them yet. The Holy Spirit will get in there and say, ask them this question. Talk to them about this. And you can get right to the core of it. And you find out, oh, well, somebody said this to me in church and I just didn't think I was welcome there anymore. Ah, now we've found them. Now we found, now we can get in here and we can help. We can do some work. See, the Holy Spirit will help you in that. What he's telling you here is this. The attitude of the Lord to the unsaved is first off, he will leave to go after them. Secondly, he will send his Holy Spirit and team them up with you to go out there and to find them. You're not in this alone. Verse 10 said, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner. You get one sinner who repents, all heaven is is rejoicing over this. He said that over here in in verse 7. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's not how these religious leaders are looking at this. They see heaven as having more joy at the 99 who are faithful than the one who wandered away. Jesus said, "No, it's not the way that it is. And I tell you this, there's more joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who who repents. If you want to make heaven happy, reach the lost. You want to find a way to make heaven happy? Get out there and reach the lost. Don't let them don't let them wander off. Don't let them go off by the by the wayside." Stay out there and get them. Father God, there are lost people around my neighborhood. There are lost people at my workplace. There are lost people in my family. And your attitude is that you would leave the 99 to go find them. Your attitude is you will send your Holy Spirit to help me to find them. So I don't know if they got lost because they wandered off or if they got lost because they were a coin who was mishandled. Well, let's go out there and let's find them doesn't matter if they wandered off and it doesn't matter if somebody mishandled them. God is still interested in them coming back. And then we come to the most famous of these parables right here. Verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. How many sons? Sometimes I think there should have been a third. And I'll show you why here in a little while. But there's not. There's two. Why are there two sons? Because Jesus... Wanted there to be two sons. I'm going to show you something that makes it very intriguing why Jesus chose two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, when he divided his livelihood, we always like to remind you about this. In their, in this day, when you divided the livelihood, there was the uh, inheritance, there was a double portion inheritance. So what happens is you take the inheritance and you divide it by one more part than you have sons. So if you had two sons, you divide it into three parts. If you had ten sons, you would divide it into eleven parts. And the oldest son would get a double portion. It doesn't mean twice as much as some people like to try and say that it means. Double portion does not mean twice as much. What it means is you will get two shares. Everybody else is getting one. So this older son, the inheritance is divided into three parts. He got two-thirds. The younger son got one-third because it was divided into thirds. Each one got one. The older son gets another. The reason the older son gets it is because the responsibility of holding the family together and ministering to the family falls to the first son. So he has that extra responsibility. He has extra finances from the inheritance to accomplish it. That's why that is, is done that way. So a younger of them said to his father, give me my, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. So what he's saying is here, I don't want to wait until you die. I want my money now. How many as parents could get offended at this? (laughs) Absolutely we could. There is no offense on the part of the father. He just goes and he does it. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now this area, this prodigal living, a lot of people read into the word and they try and come up with all kinds of things for it. This word is only used here in the New Testament. We don't have any other place where this word is used in the New Testament. And it makes basically means uh, frivolous, living. It doesn't necessarily mean unrighteous living. It can mean unrighteous living. But it could mean something like this. Say that you have three kids and they all go off and they get their apartment and they got a job and now they're on their own. And so uh, one of the children decides to live frivolously. They get a credit card. They go down to Best Buy they buy the big screen TV, the sound system. They buy all the new appliances for the house and they rack up charges on the credit card. And the other one said, well, you know, we can't quite afford that yet. We're going to wait for a little while. Which one of those lived frivolously? The, the one who went out and went above his means and, and bought things that he eh, probably shouldn't. Well, I've got money now. Uh, yeah, but not that much. He wasn't quite understanding all that was there. Doesn't mean that he went out to the bars and drank every night. Might mean that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. In using this word, Jesus does not imply or conclude the type of lifestyle he lived, just that he was frivolous with his money. So, prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Huh. So now all the resources that he has that he came into this land with. He's in a foreign land. He came from his father's land. He's in a foreign land and he used up all the resources that he brought with him. As far as we know, he has done nothing in this foreign land to stimulate any income. All he has done is spend the money. When he got done, he found out that this land can't support me because it's in a famine. Uh-huh. Boy, if you want to see some implication on this, when you have Christians who decide to leave the, the things of God and go out into the world, things are going good for a little while. But then pretty soon they find out that this world does not satisfy them the way that things satisfied them in the kingdom of God. So, there's a famine in the land. There's nothing there to take care of his, his needs. But he had spent all there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He's never known one. This is a person who has never had a need. Everything was provided for him. But here in this land, apart from the Father, we're having trouble. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. Is that in there by accident? Of course not. He joined himself to who? Someone not of the Father's kingdom. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. See, they're a citizen. It didn't just say a person. This is the citizen of that country. He's not a citizen of that country. He's a citizen of the country where his father is at. He went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, there's probably no worse job for a good Jewish boy than to go out there and feed the swine. They see them as unclean. They, are, they don't raise them themselves. And beside that, pigs stink. He's not used to the, the horrendous smell that a pig can, uh, can put out. And they'll eat anything. And so the stuff that he's feeding is the stuff that no one else on the, on the farm wants. And they're going to give it to the pigs. And he got so hungry, he would have been willing to eat what the swine would eat, what the pigs would eat. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Now somehow he wasn't able to take from that either but they, they gave him the slop and he took, it out, took that slop out but after a while that slop began to look good. He was hungry. He was in want. You see, when you get brought into the family of God your spirit becomes awakened and your spirit needs certain things to, to, to be fed. And when you get out there in the world and you join yourselves to the people of the world, you're going to find out that the stuff that they have, that the stuff they live off of, this is slop. They go off to the bars and they're all having a good time. And you're sitting here saying, I, I, I just, I, I'm not, I'm not feeling this. I can't relate to this, this kind of a lifestyle. People are hooked on drugs and you say, I don't, I don't understand why you would be drawn into that. There's, there's no need for that. My God supplies all those things on the inside. I have no need to, to go out and all these these things. But if you begin to become separated, become attached to the people in the land, you can get pulled into this. This guy did not. This guy did not get pulled into that completely. Now the difference here between this one and the other two, these are your blanks you got there. He deliberately and willfully went against the Father's will and became lost. Lost. You see, the first one wandered away. The second one was mishandled by people in the church. This one, they made a decision. They deliberately and willfully went against the will of the Father. And they became lost. There are people that you may know. They have become lost because of their own decision. They decided to walk away from the things of God. They decided to walk away from the word. They decided to pursue other things. They became lost and it's their fault. They did it. Now, he went to a far far land, a far country. He went somewhere way past the what he imagined his father's eye could see. Ephesians 4.17 reads this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, here's the thing with this son. He's been alienated from the life of God, but he still knows what it was like. Oh, I remember what it was like with my father. It wasn't like this. Huh. Verse seventeen. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, people who have wandered away from God because of a deliberate decision on their own are nuts. They <laughs> they need to have a a time Jesus moment. and come back to themselves, and and that's why if you've ever Talk with some people. They used to be in church and they wandered away. They're not in church. They're away from all that stuff. And they're doing things. They're thinking things. You're thinking, how can you think that way? How do you see anything good? And how can you agree with what's going on? You may know some Christians. They've wandered away from God. They are in a foreign land and, and they're out there and they're, they're siding with some of these gender issues, but on the wrong side. They're coming up with some of these social things and and yeah, I think it's okay that men are in women's sports. Men use the ladies' locker rooms. I think these are okay. No, it's not okay at all. But you see, they've they've gotten that because they're they're out of their minds. They've wandered in a foreign land. And you're not going to be able to understand the things that they're doing and saying. Now, how many have ever been tempted to get into an argument with these people and try and win them over? Me. Yeah. No, I haven't Ed joined me. He said he you too. <laughs> you and me. I I I can sometimes. I don't anymore. But i tell you I used to be able to be pulled right into that argument thing, and anymore I just understand you're nuts. I may even say that out loud. But they're nuts. You've lost your mind. Why? Because you wandered away from God. And you can do nothing to argue those people into the kingdom of God. How many have ever tried to argue people back into the kingdom of God? And failed, and felt like you failed because you tried to argue them back into the kingdom of God. God, I'm so sorry. I tried to help them. I tried to show them your word. I just, I couldn't get through to them. You need to learn from this parable because this parable is going to help you out. Who are we supposed to emulate in our life? Supposed to emulate God, Jesus. We're to emulate the shepherd. The shepherd would pursue the one who wandered off. The shepherd would empower the church to go and find that one that was mishandled. But look at what he does to this one. But well, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And I'm starving over here. And my my dad's got servants. And the servants are doing better than I am. Verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now look at this. Verse 20. And he arose from his land, his foreign land, and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. Where is the father? When we had the sheep that wandered off, where did the shepherd go? He went after the wandering sheep, right? When we have the mature son who wanders off, where is the father? He's at home. Notice that the father does not pursue the son. There is no pursuit from the father to the son. What he does is he is watching. Because it says that when he was a long way off, the father spots him. How does the father spot him when he's a long way off? Because the father's working around on the property and he's looking. wonder if he's coming back yet. But he's not leaving. He's not going after him. He doesn't chase him. He keeps going about the business of the, whatever it is that they have. And he's looking out. And while he's a long way off, the father sees him. Oh, there he is. Now he's coming father makes no effort to go get him until the son starts home. He needed that son to come to his senses. He needed that son to understand you may think you want something out there, but you don't. But you've got to understand yourself. You've got to come to this yourself. I don't want this. And then when you come back, what you will find is a father who says, come on. Now, you remember the spiel he rehearsed? It's in the parable. It's in there for a reason. He's got a whole spiel, right? Verse 21. Now, it's already happened that the father's gotten a hold of him and he was still a great way off. Verse 20. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him The people that Jesus is ministering to, how much compassion do they have for the Son? None. And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your Son. What's the next part? Make me as one of your hired servants. Right? He doesn't get there. But the Father said to his servants, not to the Son. The Son is in the middle of his spiel. He wants to spell all this out. I'm going to make a plea to just become a servant. And so he makes this, this plea. Son said to the Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's really all the Father needed to hear. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But we cut him off. There'll be no talk of becoming a servant. No. But the father said to his servants. See, he turned away from the son. Why? Because the son is not a servant. And the father does not see him as a servant. He sees him as a son. He says to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. How many saw the cartoon I put in there for you? I like Snoopy's take on that. What did the fatted calf do? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be married. How many have ever heard the debate do people who are in the body of Christ and who deliberately and intentionally rebel against the Father and wander off, are they saved? How many have ever heard that debate? Now, the Calvinists believe that if you're once saved, always saved. The Arminians believe that you can be saved today, lost tomorrow, saved the next day, lost again. I think the only thing that matters is what does Jesus believe. And Jesus tells us right here. There is really no debate. I don't know why anybody debates this. It is really clear. Look at what Jesus says. For my son was what? Dead. Is he dead? No. The condition you would call the son in right now is best described from last week. Half dead. He is spiritually dead, physically alive. My son was dead. These are Jesus' words that he picks for the father to say. No one gave them to him. My son was dead and is alive. He was dead, but you see he came back He came back to the house and he repented. He was dead. He was dead. Not he was sort of dead. He was dead. Which meant, is he going to heaven? No. In the words of Jesus. No. I don't care what Calvin believes. For this my son was dead and is alive again. In case you didn't get it. He was lost. Do lost people go to heaven? No, and is found. Now, that's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Lost and is found. Was the sheep found? Yes. Was the coin found? Now, look at the story. Was the son found? (laughs) Nobody went out there looking for him. But look at what Jesus says. He was lost and is found. Why does, choose, why does he choose this wording? I mean, isn't that interesting? Why does he choose this wording? He was lost and is found. Because when you take someone who is a son, who is a mature one, we are not talking about a sheep and we are not talking about someone who was just mishandled by the church. We are talking about a son who is, has his inheritance in God. And they decide to turn around and to walk away. They are lost and they are dead. But now they're alive and found. Who found the son? Come on, it's pretty obvious. The son. Isn't that right? The son found the son, didn't he? Finds out there in the, he's out there in the field all by himself. Feeding pigs. And what happened? Came to his senses. Says, You know what? If I go back, you're trying really hard to win these people back, to argue them back into the kingdom, and guess what? You can go after a wandering sheep, you can search for the lost coin. But that mature son who wandered away? They've got to find themselves. They gotta to come to their senses. They got to submit themselves to God. Stop blaming other people. That's what this man did. Look at his words that Jesus picked. I have sinned against heaven and against you. He doesn't blame anyone at all. I have sinned against heaven and against you. He also says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That part got in there. But the father said to his servants, nope, nope, nope. Bring out the best robe. What does the robe, what does the clothing represent in the parables we've seen so far? Righteousness. Remember the man last week? His clothing was taken off. He no longer had the righteous clothes. He was half dead. And then Jesus on a journey Came and found him on the side of the road, ministered to him, and put clothes back on him. This man doesn't even have sandals. And the father says, First thing, first thing, not feed him. I don't know if he's been starving for pig slop. I would think maybe the first thing we want to do is get some food into his belly. First thing he says is what? Get him a robe righteousness he will wear again. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat, be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We said the son came to himself, wandering from the father is like being out of your mind. Don't wander away from the father. It is like being out of your mind. You're just not aware of it. You have you got saved, you got drawn into the kingdom, and you're next to the Father, you're getting closer and closer to the Father, and you have a right mind. But you start to wander away, you're going to go back into that old, depraved mind before, and you will not even realize how stupid you are. The people that you are hearing that wandered away from God, they do not even realize how stupid they are. don't even realize it. But they have to come back to the right mind first. And then you can minister to them. I put this in your outline for you. Repentance, not perfection, restores us to our former position. Here's where you can see some of the things that go along with, with last week. It is repentance. Remember the last week? What must I do to be saved? What, what did he have to do? Receive the work of the one who is despised. Received the work of Jesus. That's all he had to do to be saved. Now here, this man was already saved. He wandered away. Got involved in the sin. What did he have to do? Repent. Not become perfect. A lot of times Christians are out there. They're trying to make sinners become perfect. Nope. You do not have to become perfect. The enemy is going to try and make you think you've got to become perfect. You've got to get rid of all these things that the Bible says are sins or that Christians have told you are sins. You've got to get rid of them all until you get rid of them all. You're not righteous before the Father. There is not a bit of effort to try and rid this guy of whatever things he has picked up. Nope, put a robe on him. This is my son. He is alive. He is found. That's not the end of the story though. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. What's he doing in the field? It's working. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He doesn't know why. Apparently no word was sent out to the son to let him know his brother came back. He's out there in the field. He's working. Comes back on in. Here's music. Here's dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. He would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Now he was the older son. He was the one who remained faithful remained diligent to keep doing the will of the father. All the time the other son is away, this guy is out there in the field working for the father, working for the kingdom. But he decides... When he hears that the rebellious son came home. I'm not going in there. And we're going to sit out here and pout. And the father goes out to the minister to him. Look, come on. Come on in. Don't be standing out here. So he answered and said to his father. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat. That I might make merry with my friends. <laughs> never threw a party for me. But as soon as this son of yours come, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. This could be real easy to slip by you. You might not see it. How did he use up his money? Harlots. Who told the brother that? How does the brother come to the conclusion that the brother, his younger brother, has been with harlots and with spending all the money out there. How does he come to that conclusion? Because the whole time he's out there working in the field, he's judging his brother. I'll bet he's out there partying up. I'll bet you he's out there drinking. I'll bet you he's out there with the women. I'll bet he's out there doing all these. He's thinking all these things about it. He hasn't talked to anybody. Didn't even know the brother was back. And his first thought? He's out there with harlots. Using up all your money. As soon as the son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And if you thought that wording was accidental in any way, he repeated the whole thing. Your brother was dead. And is alive again. Now his words about his brother. Why did you do this for him? Why did you not do it for me? Look at how deserving I am. I've been out working in the field. Every day I'm out there working in the field for you. Every day. And you apparently don't even care. Because if I had been rebellious. And I'd come on in and ask you for the fatted calf. You would have killed it for me. But I'm out there in the field. Working all the time. Out there Always working for the kingdom. Always out there doing the things of the kingdom. I'm living your word. I'm trying to put your word into work in my life. I'm staying away from the harlots. I'm staying out of the bars. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. And you have a party for him? You didn't have a party for me? Huh. This isn't good. Put this in your outline for you. Make sure you get this one. Unthankful people. Focus on value and judgment unthankful people focus on value and judgment. They look at how valuable my surface, my faithfulness and so forth is. And they look how invaluable are the actions of other people. That is judgment. They look at how valuable I am and how invaluable other people are. This is what this brother is doing. Look at how valuable I have been for your kingdom. Look at how invaluable he has been. He used up your money. He used up the things for your kingdom. Unthankful people focus on value and judgment. Thankful people focus on grace and mercy. Thankful people focus on grace and mercy. If you want to know if you are an unthankful or a thankful person, do you look at value and judgment or do you look for opportunities of grace and mercy? Gotta yeah, tell you right there. I will tell you right there. The brother saw the wayward son as a sinner. He saw him as a sinner. How did the religious leaders look at the tax collectors and the sinners? They saw him as sinners. They did not see them as people valued by God. Saw him as sinners. God the Father saw him as a lost son. Still a son but a lost one. The brother just uh, just a sinner. I heard a story a man was in a hospital bed and he said to his wife you've always been with me when I've had trouble you're there. When I lost my shirt and the poor investment you were there. When I had a car accident you were the one who was with me. When I got fired you were there. And I realize that in all these misfortunes that I've had in life, you were there. Now, I believe that what my, sen- my, what my friends are saying is so. You are bad luck. You weren't expecting that, were you? See, sometimes our perspective can be altered and can be kind of crazy. This, this perspective of the brother was altered. perspective of the father was different. You're looking at the same situation. Now when the father first came out to the son, you remember what he said to him? Why are you upset? All that I have is yours. Think about that. All that I've got is yours. He divided up the inheritance, didn't he? And the one son cashed it in. And he went out and lived however he lived. The other son didn't. He stayed there and worked. Could he have cashed in a fatted calf if he wanted to? Absolutely. Could have done it. Why didn't he do it? Because he's too caught up in working for the kingdom. Some Christians are so caught up in working for the kingdom they think I ought to get extra points for all the work I'm putting in for the kingdom and God should throw parties for me. God should be glad that I am in the fold. Isn't that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these guys? You're, you're lucky to have us. I mean, we are. We are good people. Not these sinners and tax collectors. Oh, no, we're not that kind. No. Our words will identify us. The lost son was identified by the father as a son who was dead. The father looked at the son. He said, he's a son. He was dead, but he's a son. That's how the father looked at him. The servants, they looked at him as your brother. They called him, your brother came back. They saw him as a brother. Father saw him as a son. But the older brother, this son of yours, not even brother of mine, this son of yours, your words will identify you. Look at the words that you say and look at the words that the leaders were using. Why does he eat with tax collectors? Why does he eat? Why does he fell? Why is he teaching them the word of God? Your words will identify you. Unthankful people blame and expect. That's what unthankful people do. They blame and expect. Thankful people receive and rejoice. You see, this man, this son, became a thankful person and he decided, I'm going to go back and receive the position of a servant and I am going to rejoice in that. But the father had said, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to stay a son and you're going to receive the things of the son. Other people would be in that same situation. They would blame. Look at those friends who used up all my money and now they, they don't help me out. They would expect people around there to be helping them. Thankful people see opportunity. Thankful people, get this one down, thankful people see opportunity where others see partiality and discrimination. Be careful you don't fall into that. That is the people of the world that will think that way. Don't be thinking it about with God. In God's kingdom, no. God is not looking at you with partiality. The word of God teaches that. He is not discriminating Well, you haven't been in the kingdom long enough. This one's been in the kingdom longer. I'm going to give some things to to them instead. No. Thankful people see opportunity where others see partiality and discrimination. When we truly understand that we have been the recipient of mercy and grace, we cannot help but give the same to others. When you understand how much grace and mercy you have received, you cannot help but give the same grace and mercy to others. If you have people in the body of Christ and they are not extending grace and mercy to you, if they are not extending grace and mercy to the people that are around them, it is because they have not realized the grace and mercy that they have received. They are unthankful. They are in that category and that's why they act the way they do. Do not get offended at them. Just be looking. My God looks at things this way. When the Son comes to Himself and returns to the Father, look at His request. He acknowledges his error. I have sinned. He accepts a lower place. He is humble before the Father and He does not claim a right. But He asks the Father to make Him something. Father, make me one of Your servants. He had no money left, but the Father still sees Him as a son. I think this is one of the most beautiful things in this story. The Father does not look to be right, but to restore Sometimes, folks, we are so caught up with being right, we forget the idea of restoring. Not once do we see in this story the father said, "I told you you shouldn't go." Now you got nothing. I told you you shouldn't do it. He doesn't doesn't say that. He's not looking to be right. He's looking to restore. How do I become righteous? What does the prodigal son do? He was a son. He left. He rebelled. He came back. First off, he confessed his wrong. Secondly, he received the robe of a son. That's it. He confessed his wrong. And he received the robe of a son. That's how he came back. If that's all that the father required, how can we require anything else? We're not following in the path of God. Now, how similar is this to the Good Samaritan parable? The younger son was prodigal, but became humble and grateful, right? The younger son, he was prodigal, but he became humble and grateful. The older son was diligent, but became proud and judgmental. He was diligent. Now, look at this. Remember I told you I think we to have three sons, but I didn't make the story up. The younger son was prodigal, but became humble and grateful. The older son was diligent but became proud and judgmental. What are we missing? I'll tell you what we're missing. No son was faithful. Do you see that? There was no son that was faithful. None. Not the first, not the second. None of them were faithful. Is that an accident? Is that something that God did accidentally? I wrote Mark, but I did not mean Mark. I meant Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, verse 28, we're not going to get into this. I just want to read it for you because down the road we're going to get into this parable. This is the parable that Jesus also told later on. Well, what do you think? A man had two sons. How many sons? Two. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of this father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, like we said, we'll get into this later on. But I want you to see what happens. There was no son who said, I will do it and went out and did it. There was no faithful son in that parable or this other one. How many people are faithful according to the Word of God? If you think back to the faithful series, how many, how many did it say? Few. Few. In fact, if you look at Paul in his day, he said there was two. Him and who else? Timothy. Timothy. That's it. And look at the big guys that he was, he was uh, pushing around with. Why? Because here in this parable he says, one says, I'll do it and doesn't. And the other one says, I won't do it and did. Now, those two sons, can you see the two sons from this parable? The younger son said, I'm not living this way. But then came back and said, I'll live this way. I'll do your will. The older son said, I'll live this way. But he never did. He didn't have his Father's heart. He worked for the kingdom, but he didn't have his Father's heart. Let's go back again to what we're looking at. He's answering the question of the Pharisees. He's asking the question of the Sadducees. He's asking the, answering the question of the religious leaders who looked at him ministering to sinners. Why does he eat with them? Why does he teach them? Why does he associate with them? And what Jesus is saying is, these folks here that are sinners... They may have said no to me in the beginning but they're saying yes now. You guys who say you say yes to me in the beginning and are always out there in the field working you don't have the Father's heart. If you had the Father's heart you would pick up his heart for the lost and you despise the lost. You think they're below you. A lot of Jesus' teachings all ties together in here and this does as well. God wants us to have a heart for the lost. We've challenged you to go out there and find some folks to invite out here in the month of August. Don't let that go by. Be asking, Father, you are, you care for the lost. If I want to make heaven happy, I need to reach the lost. You may not have any lost people in your in your circle. That's okay. You go into a restaurant. You go into a supermarket. You go into a store. Be, Father God, I'm here. Where is somebody? Show me somebody who's wandered off. Somebody's, show me somebody who's been mishandled. Show me someone that I can help bring back in. Have the heart that the Father does. Know when to go after them and know when to wait for them to come back to their senses and come to you. Jesus said it's not all one size fits all. Some people you have to go after. Some people you need the help of the Holy Spirit to help find out where did they go. And some people, you need to just wait until they come to their senses. But you be ready for them. When you see them coming, you walk on. Don't sit there and say, alright, well, as soon as you get rid of this, 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 this in your life, come on. No, as soon as they repent. Here's the robe. Here we go. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we need to pick up your heart for the lost. There are lost people around us. We work next to them. We live next to them. Sometimes we can just get the same attitude that the religious leaders had and think they are not worthy of our time. But Father, they're worthy of yours and they need to be worthy of ours. Help us as we reach out. Show us some people that we can minister to. That we can show grace and mercy for the more grace and mercy we demonstrate in our life, the more thankfulness we have. But if we're going to sit there and just judge the people, have an unthankful heart, we're not going to be going in the right direction. We're not going to be faithful in administering the will of God in this world. You have a heart that loves the lost. If you He wants to see them, come back. Father, we want to pick up that same heart that You have. We thank You that You help us and give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, glory to God. Good to have you here with us today. We have um, video teaching coming out for you on Monday. And I looked at a whole lot of different church services and a couple of people I watched and got through two, three, and then they would get into something that was so outlandish. I said, there's no way I can even suggest this person. So we didn't, uh, uh, didn't go after any of those. I ended up just going back up and finding an old old uh, Winter Bible Seminar that I enjoyed, and we put that up there for you to enjoy. You've got a little bit of the worship service that goes on in the beginning, and then Brother Hagen gets into teaching some things on the gifts and the gifts overall in the body, not just the spiritual gifts, the gifts overall in the body. But he will do this for you, and I, I, I like this one. This is something I have never taught for you, because whenever I teach you something, I always confirm it with two sources. If I can only confirm something with one source, I may believe it's true, but I don't come out and teach it to you, unless I can confirm it with two sources. But here, Brother Hagan is going to teach you something from uh, the passage of John 14:12, 13, and 14. Remember when Jesus says, "Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will do it." How remember you know that scripture? Whatever you ask the Father. Well, he has a, 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 a it was actually a friend of his, P. C. Nelson. He sat under him for for a while, and P. C. Nelson is one of the foremost authorities on language. In fact, at his, in his day, according to him, he knew how to read and write 32 languages. 32 languages. One of them was Greek. And he would sit down and he would do his uh, Bible study, his Bible reading in Greek because he understood it that well. And he said there's a lot of, a lot of uh, nuances in the, in the Greek text that you just can't move over in English. And right around the one-hour part in this video, he's going to share with you what P.C. Nelson told him about John 14, 12, 13, and 14. It's an incredible understanding of it, and it comes from the understanding of the Greek. I hope you uh, will get to pull that out and enjoy it. I didn't expect that too many people uh, enjoyed last Monday's video post. I got uh, one comment throughout the whole week, and then uh, Ms. Ethel doubled it by uh, put, posting one on their way <laughs> in the church this morning. So we got two comments. Phyllis and Ethel gave us a, uh, uh, that they, they enjoyed it. Um, I know there wasn't a whole lot of depth there. There wasn't a whole lot of meat there. But he was kind of just a, a fun one. I just wanted you to get a, t- a touch of some of the things uh, that the people who were before. And uh, you know we, I keep looking at new stuff. I looked at some new seminars and things that were going on this week. I found absolutely nothing that I got excited about to to share with you. So brought this one on up. You can go up to our YouTube channel. It's up there right now if you want to go see it or wait for the link that will come out.